psalm is one of the great psalms of praise, and it calls us to public praise, especially when we are afraid or in despair. For those of you who are technically minded, this is a, a very stylish song. It has six stanzas, one six-line to begin, then four eight-line verses, then one six-line to end. Uh, stanzas one and six, the first and the last, are the kind of the, the bread of the sandwich, and they both call us to rejoice in the Lord. And these first three verses tell us that we are to praise God. Now, praise just means give thanks, and that's what we're going to do in a moment where we, we sing a song um, that we are praising and giving thanks to God. We're asked to do so in the context of instrumental music and loud acclamation. Shout for joy. There is a place for contemplation. There's a place for quietness. Uh, there's a place also for shouting. And there's a place for real joy. It is the response, the right response of those who are right in heart. Now, I'm a Presbyterian. And I'm a Scottish Presbyterian, which gives me a double dose of joy. And it's, it's just, it's so deep down, you have to mine for it to, to get it out. I think there's a, a false kind of joy, there's a wrong kind of joy, there's a superficiality and all the rest of it. But there have to be, surely there has to be times when we, we sing for joy to God. And we sing a new song, it says. We are to sing to him a new song, verse 3. That's not so much novelty, but the idea of it being fresh. It's a fresh awareness of who God is. You know what tired worship is? Tired worship is not just when you're singing the same songs over and over and over again, but tired worship is when you just, you've, you've no sense of God's presence. You've no sense of who God is. You need fresh uh, an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon us, a fresh awareness of who God is. To worship God, we need, says one man, three things. We need a fresh sense of who He is, the fervor of joy, and the skill of musicianship. I love what the Calvinist Baptist minister Spurgeon says about this passage. Listen to these words, and then we're going to sing, so hopefully Spurgeon wouldn't be saying them to us. He says this, it is wretched to hear God praised in a slovenly manner. He deserves the best we have. Every Christian should endeavor to sing according to the rules of the art so that he may keep time and tune with the congregation. The sweetest tunes and the sweetest voices with the sweetest words are all too little for the Lord our God. Let us not offer him limping rhymes set to harsh tunes and growled out by discordant voices. Well, Spurgeon was always on the ball, and I think that that is very, very true. Uh, we are to rejoice in the Lord, and we begin. I'm going to read again uh, Psalm 33, just from verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. 
But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. I want just to say something about this, and I want to go back to this morning, for those of you who weren't here this morning, to say a little bit uh, about, uh, just remind us a little bit about what God, through Jeremiah, was telling us. If we have the, um, is that up there? Yeah, oops. It will say Jeremiah on it, I think. And it's just, some of you asked about the images, and thanks to Al for putting them up there. Um, I didn't see them so clearly with the sunlight in the morning. But in Jeremiah 2, we're contrasting when you choose God and when you turn away from God. The bride or the wild donkey? The fertile land or the desert? Are we fruitful or are we just desert? The glory? Are we worshiping the glory or do we worship worthless idols? Uh, The free or the slave? Um, Interesting image of the slave and particularly you'll notice the bar tag, which is not some conspiracy theory, but just basically saying we're bought and sold. And then this one, the fountain and the broken cisterns. And that really, that that picture up there is a picture of where we're at, where we're going to, where we come in to look at this in Psalm 33, where you're contrasting being joyful in the Lord and the joy that the broken cisterns of this world give us. And in that first two, the first verse we've looked at was about being joyful in the Lord. The second verse is about God's purpose in creation. Why are we to praise God? Why are we to be joyful in the Lord? Because the word of the Lord is right and true. He's faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Before we can understand the world, we have to meet its creator. God's word is the instrument of creation. It is right and it is true. It is good and it is pure. God is faithful. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Even in a fallen world, there is lavish beauty, riches, stored up treasures. There are recurring seasons, sometimes in Scotland, four in one day. But it's there. It's all, all this beauty is, is there. And it's because God is faithful. This extraordinary verse in verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Now, if you've ever seen, there's a, a video clip that you can get called Indescribable, which looks at just how vast the universe is. And what we are being told here in the psalm is our God is so great that it's, it's as if he just breathed these into being. It is an incredible image. Here's another one, the waters. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. The sea was seen in that culture as being the most unruly part of the world. You couldn't control the sea. There are 140 million miles of the ocean. 70% of the earth is sea. It is an incredible power. And we're being told about our God that he takes it and puts it in his pocket. He breathes out the stars. He puts the sea into his pocket. God's purpose in creation. 
Now, so much, of course, of this is imagery. It's not telling us exactly how he did it and so on, but it's saying that our God is not a God who is created out of human imagination. It's not a product of the creation, but he is the creator. And some people will say, ah, but the universe is too big, or we now understand a lot more about the world. No, you don't. Because long before we had modern scientific discoveries, the Bible was telling us how vast and how great the universe is, and it was saying of the stars, these are but the outer fringe of his power. And it's saying of the seas, he takes it and he puts it in his pocket. It's all his. Verses 8 to 11 speaks about God's purpose in providence. God is more than just the initiator. He is more than just the person who provides all the laws and the physics and the biology and everything. He is the one who is worthy of reverence because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. It's in him that all things hold together. It's because he restrains and because everything has a season and a purpose. Human nations, says the psalmist, they plan. People's purpose. But God foils and thwarts. His plans and purposes can never be broken and can never be stopped. One of the old Puritans said this, there's nothing passed in the lower parliament on earth that has not been decreed in the higher courts in heaven. We worship a God who is worthy of worship because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Far too often for us as Christians, our God is too small. Because we cannot comprehend this God, we reduce him to what we can comprehend. And he's a weak and pathetic God. But our God is the fountain of life. Our God is indescribable. And yet, through the words of Scripture, we seek to sing and to describe the indescribable. And we're going to do that just now. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for inheritance From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine." Our God has this awesome power, and He uses it. He uses it for us. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He chose for His inheritance. We are poor. We are battered. We are weak. In the Old Testament, He chose one nation. He chose the nation of Israel, a tiny nation in the midst of an area of the world which has always and continues to be an area of the world which the great nations fight over. And Israel was overwhelmed by Assyria, by Egypt, by Babylon. And yet, God chose that people. And from that, then all people are surveyed, and all people, in some sense, are blessed. And that's what God has done with us. It's an extraordinary claim to make. But if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, The reason that is the case, as Jesus says, is you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you to go go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Why would the God, if this is true, that there's a God for whom the seas can be put in his pocket, there's a God for whom that he breathed out 
the vast universe, this incredibly all-powerful God, why would He choose someone like you and like me? Because He wants to. Because He forms the hearts of all. He considers everything they do. And it seems strange that we as Christians, or that we as human beings, and sometimes even those of us who are Christians, what we do is we, we think we can make it on our own. We have our own worldly security. Look at verse 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. I guess the modern equivalent of that would be either a tank or a BMW or a Maserati or something is a vain hope for deliverance. What does position like being a king? That doesn't save us. Prowess like being a warrior, that doesn't save us. But look at what God provides, His eyes and His love. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. The God who created the whole universe watches over us and His love. This is not a God who creates and some kind of supercomputer, some kind of powerful machine. I know that people suggest that one day we're going to create machines with emotions. No, we're not. We're going to create machines who replicate emotions that we put in. We may talk about machinery as though we love it. Um, what was the old Queen song? I'm in love with my car, got a feel for my automobile. You're a very sad person if that's true. Um, you get people who say they love their computer or they love their uh, mobile phone, whatever type it is. But we don't. And machines don't love us back. God is not the super machine. God is love. That's what 1 John tells us. The God who is the creator of everything is the God who is love. And what's His purpose? Verses 16 to 19, His purpose is to save, to deliver from death. It's not fate and determinism. It's God who is working for each individual and God who is working for the whole nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In God we trust. It's funny how uh, the city of Glasgow has a motto, let Glasgow flourish, but that's not its motto. That's the city of Glasgow's motto today because the city of Glasgow's motto is let, Ga let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of His Word because the preaching of His Word tells us who God is. We think God is either uh, an inconvenience to our lives or someone whom we can uh, like a pet pony or something that we can control. But God says, no, no, that's not the way it is. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am the savior. We're going to uh, come in a short while to take communion and take the bread and the wine. And let me explain what that means and what that is. The bread represents the body of Jesus, the wine, his blood. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the one who came, the one who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus created the stars. Jesus has the sea in His pocket as well. And the extraordinary thing that we are celebrating this evening is this, is that that Jesus 
came down and as a baby lived on this earth, grew as a boy, became a a, a carpenter, at the age of 30 was baptized, had a ministry of miracles and teaching, at the age of 33 was killed by his own people in the most horrific of deaths, and then in an extraordinary thing, he was raised from the dead and declared with power to be the Son of God. All along, God was coming into his own creation as an embryo, and then a baby, and a boy, and a young man, and a crucified Savior. And when the disciples realized what was happening and who Jesus was and why he died and how he came to rescue us from our own stupid choices, our own evil choices, they remembered what he had told them, and they celebrated regularly when they met together. They celebrated and remembered by sharing bread which spoke not only of his broken body, but also of his healed body, that is the body of his people, and by taking wine which reminded them of the cost that the one who flung the stars into space is the one whose hands were nailed to a tree for our sins. I want to issue an invitation to you. It's the invitation of Jesus, where Jesus says, we, we, we know about Jesus, you did not choose me, but I chose you, where Jesus tells us to come to him and to sit at his table. Now, when we talk about communion, I think it's a big mistake when people think, oh, well, just by taking the communion, you become a Christian. No, you don't. And if you're not a Christian, and if you haven't come to Jesus, you shouldn't take the communion. When the bread and wine is passed around, you don't know what you're doing, you're you're not sure about this yet, you're not a Christian yet, then pass it on, but pass it on with a prayer which says, Lord, come into my life and don't let this be, or rather, let this be the last time that I'm not able to take communion. But there is an invitation that we do have to come to Christ and to know Christ and to give our lives to Christ. Libin was talking and What's the difference between a traditional religious sect or a a modern contemporary sect? It's about, I'll tell you what the difference is in all of it. It's just simply Christ. You see, I like the description that Libin gave of the young men in the CU who were passionate about Jesus and who cared about people, but who had enough security in their faith in Christ that they were not trying to compel people or force people, but were prepared to listen and to answer questions and to consider and to think and not to think that they knew all the answers. They knew Jesus Christ. And that's, in a sense, all that we need to know because from Him comes everything else. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need to do to come to Christ. If you are a Christian... This is what the Lord says. I know that uh, some people found this morning quite hard. You ain't seen nothing yet as we're going through Jeremiah because, yeah, it is hard, but not hard in a bad way. It's hard in this sense. Imagine you're in a relationship with somebody and the two of you never talk. Then your relationship's in trouble. Or you're in a relationship with somebody and you talk 
but you tell lies. Then your relationship's in trouble. Or you're in a relationship with somebody and you talk and you tell the truth, but you do it to wound and to hurt. Then your relationship is in trouble. God does none of those things. He does the fourth. The fourth is when you talk and what is said may go very deep and, and, and hurt, but it's done for love. Those whom I love, says Jesus, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, come and sit at my table. I'm talking to those of you who believe and who trust in Jesus and who are Christians. And you are weak and you are tired and you are struggling and you are hurt and you are confused and you're not sure where a whole range of things are going or what is happening. And Jesus says, I know, I know. Come to me and rest. Now we will take uh, communion in a moment, but I want to uh, sing again and to sing that song of uh, Boners, Horatius Boners. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And as we sing this, we will stand and sing it, but we'll sing it prayerfully and just think of, of what the words are saying. It is a beautiful thing to be invited by the creator and sustainer and savior of the whole world to come to him. I heard the voice of Jesus say, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Our God has this awesome power, and he uses it. He uses it for us. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. We are poor, we are battered, we are weak. In the Old Testament, he chose one nation. He chose the nation of Israel, a tiny nation in the midst of an area of the world which has always and continues to be an area of the world which the great nations fight over. And Israel was overwhelmed by Assyria, by Egypt, by Babylon. And yet, God chose that people. And from that, then all people are surveyed, and all people, in some sense, are blessed. And that's what God has done with us. It's an extraordinary claim to make. But if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the reason that is the case, as Jesus says, is you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you to go, go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Why would the God, if this is true, that there's a God for whom the seas can be put in his pocket, there's a God for whom that he breathed out the vast universe, this incredibly all-powerful God, why would he choose someone like you and like me? Because he wants to because he forms the hearts of all. He considers everything they do. And it seems strange that we as Christians, or that we as human beings, and sometimes even those of us who are Christians, what we do is we 
We think we can make it on our own. We have our own worldly security. Look at verse 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. I guess the modern equivalent of that would be either a tank or a BMW or a Maserati or something is a vain hope for deliverance. What does position like being a king? That doesn't save us. Prowess like being a warrior, that doesn't save us. But look at what God provides. His eyes and His love. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. The God who created the whole universe watches over us. And His love. This is not a God who creates and some kind of supercomputer, some kind of powerful machine. I know that people suggest that one day we're going to create machines with emotions. No, we're not. We're going to create machines who replicate emotions that we put in. We may talk about machinery as though we love it. Um, What was the old Queen song? I'm in love with my car, got a feel for my automobile. You're a very sad person if that's true. Um, You get people who say they love their computer or they love their uh, mobile phone, whatever type it is. But we don't. And machines don't love us back. God is not the super machine. God is love. That's what 1 John tells us. The God who is the creator of everything is the God who is love. And what's his purpose? Verses 16 to 19, his purpose is to save, to deliver from death. It's not fate and determinism. It's God who is working for each individual and God who is working for the whole nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In God we trust. It's funny how uh, the city of Glasgow has a motto, let Glasgow flourish, but that's not its motto. That's the city of Glasgow's motto today because the city of Glasgow's motto is let let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word because the preaching of his word tells us who God is. We think God is either uh, an inconvenience to our lives or someone whom we can Uh, like a pet pony or something that we can control. But God says, no, no, that's not the way it is. I am the creator. I am the sustainer. I am the savior. We're going to uh, come in a short while to take communion and take the bread and the wine. And let me explain what that means and what that is. The bread represents the body of Jesus, the wine, his blood, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the one who came, the one who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus created the stars. Jesus has the sea in His pocket as well. And the extraordinary thing that we are celebrating this evening is this, is that that Jesus came down and as a baby lived on this earth grew as a boy, became a a, a carpenter, at the age of 30 was baptized, had a ministry of miracles and teaching, at the age of 33 was killed by his own people in the most horrific of deaths, and then in an extraordinary thing, he 
was raised from the dead and declared with power to be the Son of God. All along, God was coming into His own creation as an embryo, and then a baby, and a boy, and a young man, and a crucified Savior. And when the disciples realized what was happening and who Jesus was and why He died and how He came to rescue us from our own stupid choices, our own evil choices, they remembered what He had told them, and they celebrated regularly when they met together. They celebrated and remembered by sharing bread which spoke not only of His broken body, but also of His healed body, that is the body of His people, and by taking wine which reminded them of the cost that the one who flung the stars into space is the one whose hands were nailed to a tree for our sins. I want to issue an invitation to you. It's the invitation of Jesus, where Jesus says, we, we, we know about Jesus, you did not choose me, but I chose you, where Jesus tells us to come to Him and to sit at His table. Now, when we talk about communion, I think it's a big mistake when people think, oh, well, just by taking the communion, you become a Christian. No, you don't. And if you're not a Christian, and if you haven't come to Jesus, you shouldn't take the communion. When the bread and wine is passed around, you don't know what you're doing, you're, you're not sure about this yet, you're not a Christian yet, then pass it on, but pass it on with a prayer which says, Lord, come into my life and don't let this be, let, or rather, let this be the last time that I'm not able to take communion. But there is an invitation that we do have to come to Christ and to know Christ and to give our lives to Christ. Libin was talking, and what's the difference between a traditional religious sect or a, a modern contemporary sect? It's about, I'll tell you what the difference is in all of it. It's just simply Christ. You see, I like the description that Libin gave of the young men in the CU who were passionate about Jesus and who cared about people, but who had enough security in their faith in Christ that they were not trying to compel people or force people, but were prepared to listen and to answer questions and to consider and to think and not to think that they knew all the answers. They knew Jesus Christ. And that's, in a sense, all that we need to know because from Him comes everything else. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need to do to come to Christ. If you are a Christian, this is what the Lord says. I know that uh, some people found this morning quite hard. You ain't seen nothing yet if we're, as we're going through Jeremiah because, yeah, it is hard, but not hard in a bad way. It's hard in this sense. Imagine you're in a relationship with somebody and the two of you never talk then your relationship's in trouble. Or you're in a relationship with somebody and you talk, but you tell lies. Then your relationship's in trouble. Or you're in a relationship with somebody and you talk and you tell the truth, but you do it to wound and to hurt. Then your relationship is in trouble. God does none of those things. He does the fourth. The fourth is when you talk and what is said may go very deep and, and, and hurt but it's done 
for love. Those whom I love, says Jesus, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, come and sit at my table. I'm talking to those of you who believe and who trust in Jesus and who are Christians. And you are weak and you are tired and you are struggling and you are hurt and you are confused and you're not sure where a whole range of things are going or what is happening. And Jesus says, I know, I know. Come to me and rest. Now, we will take uh, communion in a moment, but I want to uh, sing again and to sing that song of uh, Boners, Horatius Boners. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And as we sing this, we will stand and sing it, but we'll sing it prayerfully and just think of, of what the words are saying. It is a beautiful thing to be invited by the creator and sustainer and savior of the whole world to come to him. I heard the voice of Jesus say. Verses 20 to uh, 22, just the last one. Let me just say something about them before we finish my singing in Psalm uh, 24. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Our position is one of hope. Not just final hope, but hope that God is our strength and our shield right now in every circumstance. He is our shelter from the storm. Our position is one of joyful trust. The joyful heart is one that trusts on what the Lord has revealed about himself, his name and his character, whereby he can never deny himself. You need to keep reminding yourself about who God is, not what the devil says he is, not what you fear he might be, but what his word, who he says he is. And that brings a joyful trust. And then thirdly, there's just the dependency of prayer. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. To pray that God's love would rest upon us embraces all our needs in one petition. God's absolute power and God's unconditional love. May the, the love of the Lord our God be upon us. And it will be. We're going to finish by singing Psalm 24 the usual psalm we sing very often anyway at the end of a communion. And just as we sang at the beginning of the communion, the invitation that Jesus gives to us, now we sing about a, a, a different kind of uh, invite, a different kind of rest, where, uh, uh, entrance, where the, the gates, the gates of our hearts, the gates of um, the temple in Jerusalem, the, the gates of, of the heavens, which are created to praise the Lord, that they be opened to acclaim and to glorify Jesus Christ. And we began by saying that we are to sing joyfully to the Lord, and we'll finish by doing that because the Lord Jesus is the one who is worthy of our praise. Psalm 20.